I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Which Please, a rebooted podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And holy shit, Marcel, we're back. We're back. So before we get into the specific content for this, our pilot episode, we thought it might be a good idea to talk a little about some of the high-level principles and assumptions of this podcast, as well as the thorny question of what it means to be making a Harry Potter podcast in 2020, when we know some uncomfortable truths about J.K. Rowling and her very, very bad opinions. Yeah. Those of you who have listened to the original run of the podcast, you will be familiar with our uh, lack of concern about what J.K. Rowling says is true versus (laughs) (laughs) versus what we can find, what we call textual evidence for. So often when we study any kind of literature, um, we are looking for what we call textual evidence. And so that means just by looking at the words on the page, can you find proof for this thing? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we want to ignore what Rowling is saying and pretend that the texts are perfect and without flaw. Mm. Looking seriously at <laughs> the textual evidence that Harry Potter provides us with shows you that the texts are also pretty flawed and it's not going to shock you to find out that they're often flawed in ways that align pretty strongly <laughs> with the flaws of the creator. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> And so we talk about those. We talk about those flaws. We talk about the problems with it. And we talk about the ways that they are hurtful. And Hannah, why do we do that? Why do we bother talking about these things that are hurtful in these things that we love? Why not just pretend that they don't exist and put our heads in the sand? Oh, it can be so tempting sometimes when there's something that matters to you uh, or a property that you find comforting to just say, I'm going to ignore the bad parts of this. Mm -hmm. But the thing about a feminist reading practice is that you can stop ignoring those bad parts. And in the process, you get to stop cutting off the parts of yourself that are hurt by those things. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of revelation to realize that you're allowed to read things in a place that comes from like your full self. You're allowed to bring Mm -hmm. your whole self into your engagement with the media and culture that means something to you. Mm -hmm. And it might in the short term feel like, oh God, paying attention to like the racism and misogyny and transphobia and ableism and fat phobia in something that I love is going to make it worse. But my experience has been that 
In fact, it feels better to mm-hmm. get to actually be my whole self when I am reading things and to critique them and push back at them and demand that things be better. That that mm-hmm. makes me feel less <laughs> gaslit, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Like any relationship that you have with someone that you love, <laughs> it is your absolute right as a person with dignity to be allowed to be your full self with that person. And so, you know, books can't talk back and they can't really change, but you are absolutely allowed to identify the things that are hurtful about those texts and accept that they should be better. Mm -hmm. In fact, the more you identify the things that are hurtful, the more space you make to build real forms of joy in the parts Mm -hmm. that you feel comfortable celebrating, whether that's the things that are actually there in the text or whether it's the kinds of fan theories and responses that have built up around the text, which Mm -hmm. we know is a lot of the source of joy for this property. Yes, absolutely. And so most of you are probably familiar with this, but we've all heard J.K. Rowling's responses. Well, it's not in the books because Harry didn't notice because it's not part of his journey, um, which is <laughs> it's bananas. It's the source of a lot of it's the source of a lot of very good jokes. It's yes. like mm, uh, nobody was wearing shoes through the entire third <laughs> book, but Harry didn't mention it because it's not part of his journey. <laughs> and so, you know, she's put that out there, and so what that does is it has uh, created this opportunity for all of us as fans and as readers of the text to find spaces for ourselves to be creative with the world that she's created, to make more room for ourselves in this place that doesn't explicitly include all of the people who love it, but has enough space where, you know, there's an entire queer Hogwarts student club, but Harry never goes to it because he doesn't identify as queer. And so it's not part of his journey. (laughs) But here are the students who do attend. And this is why they, you know, don't spend that much time with Harry because they are a little bit concerned that he's a homophobe. (laughs) There's absolutely nothing that says that we have to stick to the reading that Rowling herself wants to apply to her books. The question of our relationship to the author of a property like this is complex. It's a really complicated question because it's not just about the author's ongoing ability to define the meaning of a text. It's also about how our ongoing treatment of her as a celebrity and as a moral authority gives her the power to use her very public platform to spread right now transphobic hate speech. Mm -hmm. And so there are complex questions to grapple with around things like financial support of the Harry Potter world, about activities that put money in Rowling's pockets, about, you know, what it means to continue to engage with something that we know is causing harm in the world. And that is not a simple question. It's not a question that we will be able to solve in any mm-hmm. straightforward way for you. No. But it's a question that we want to grapple with and to think about and to acknowledge its complexity and to not insist that knowing that there are problems means that it's time to take 
this whole beloved world and put it in a dumpster. <laughs> yes. So I think that maybe for those of us who are not being personally attacked by rolling, maybe we are the people who ought to spend a little bit more time wrestling with how it is we want to give J.K. Rowling our money and if we want to give her our money. But for the folks who she is actively dehumanizing and excluding from her world, you are not responsible for making this decision for anybody else. You are allowed to find joy where joy feels real to you. These stories are your stories and you are not responsible for solving the problem of how do we separate the creator from the work of art? I think there's an important distinction to be made between the kinds of responsibilities that you and I, Marcel, and other mm -hmm. cis fans of the Wizarding World, of the Harry Potter world, have in relation to Rowling's transphobia mm -hmm. and to acknowledge that that responsibility probably looks different and that the questions that we're asking and grappling with will look different and feel different yes. than they do to trans fans. Yes. And that is hopefully something that we will also get a chance to have conversations around by having guests on the podcast who are trans. Mm -hmm. and we can have these conversations because there are conversations you and I don't necessarily have the expertise to have. No, no. As a pair of white cis women, we are quite limited in our ability to speak on behalf of the oppressed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, when you think about it, we're significantly more likely to be part of the problem. I can't stop thinking about these protest signs that I see white cis women carrying that say, I want to speak to the manager of white supremacy. And I always just want to go up to those white ladies and be like, hey, hun, I hate to break it to you, but it's us. We are, in fact, the managers of white supremacy. So we have to grapple with that in a really different way. So what we did in our original run is we would occasionally have guest speakers, and we're going to do a little bit more of that with an eye to bigger political issues and bigger issues of representation and care for the community of listeners that has formed around this podcast. And as is always the case, a really important principle of this podcast for us is being responsive to and accountable to our listeners. I mm -hmm. think that's one of the really harmful things that Rowling is doing right now is modeling a refusal to listen, a mm -hmm. refusal to learn, and a refusal to change. And I think something that you hear through the first run of Witch Please is the two of us making mistakes mm. and hearing about those mistakes mm -hmm. and apologizing and doing better. Mm -hmm. And I know that I learned so much through making the first, the original run of this podcast. It was yeah. such an education for me. And that education came through the generosity of a community of listeners willing to share their experiences and perspectives with us. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that continues to be the case with this run. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Yeah. All right. You want to uh, segue into some more flippant sorting chat talk? <laughs> Let's do it. 
great. So normally the sorting chat will be a place for us to, I don't know, just chat. Do stuff. <laughs> just, chat, just chat about how we're doing. How are you? Hey, hey, Marcel, yeah. how are you doing? Uh, you know, overall, pretty good. I successfully returned some online purchases today. So that was a big, oh. I've literally never done that before in my entire life. No matter how awful the thing is, I'm just like, well, I guess this is mine forever now. So was it a hundred dollars worth of American chocolate bars? Absolutely not. There are not a hundred dollars worth of those left. So <laughs> how many dollars are there left? I okay so for uh <laughs> listeners who are maybe not entirely sure what's happening in Canada we cannot get some chocolate bars that you can get outside of Canada I'm sure this is true in all countries yeah we have socialized medicine but we have very little freedom <laughs> and so uh my last trip to the United States of America uh introduced me to some very exciting chocolate bars that I am not able to get here I believe you call them candy bars in America. <laughs> and I uh, found a website on the internet where I could purchase these chocolate bars and have them sent to my house. And so I bought $100 worth of 100 grand, whatchamacallit, and Fifth Avenue bars. Mm, delicious. We are recording this episode in late May. So by the time you're listening to it, the world is hopefully different mm. and doesn't involve entertaining yourself by ordering $100 worth of chocolate bars. But you know what? If it does, that's fine. So do you want to talk about this reboot a little bit? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. So for those of you who have heard the show before, this sorting chat segment is probably part and parcel to what you expect from us. A whole lot of nonsense unrelated to anything. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with the podcast, which please was a project that Marcella and I started back in 2015 to reread the Harry Potter books and talk about them. Mm -hmm. And because at the time there weren't any other Harry Potter reread podcasts, we didn't get the memo that you were supposed to take your time. <laughs> so instead we just powered <laughs> through the whole series and ran out of material yeah. very quickly. That was It was pretty intense, not going to lie. But now we're going to do this over again, but in a new and improved way with the help and support of Not Sorry Productions. One of the ways that Not Sorry Productions is helping us is helping to make this whole project a little bit more financially sustainable so it doesn't look like the way that Witch Please used to look, which is Marcel and I spending hours and hours and hours making it and actively <laughs> losing money. <laughs> slowly disintegrating from the inside out. <laughs> well, I still plan on doing that part. So one of the things we want to let you know right up front is that we now have a Patreon. Mm -hmm. Hey, what's going to be on that Patreon? Well, all of that solid gold content that listeners to the previous run claimed that they wanted, like access to unedited episodes and fun movie watch along stuff, which we're currently doing with everybody, but we're going to start doing that very selectively very soon for money. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're still only barely learning our lesson about figuring out how to monetize this, but uh, we'll get there. There are a couple of things that you need to know about 
this new and improved version of Which Please that you're listening to. And the first thing is that we are joined by our wonderful ghost in the machine, our producer. Welcome back. The other new thing is that I guess we do research now. Can you believe it? What a horrifying transformation of the whole premise of our show. If you didn't listen to the first run of Which Please, you should know that we very aggressively stated at the outset of the project that we were not going to do any outside reading or research for the show. We just read the books and then talked about them based on stuff we already kind of knew about. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess now we're going to do sigh some research a thing that's not going to be different is that we're going to continue to figure out ways to interact with listeners so keep tweeting at us at oh which please keep engaging with us and we will find ways to respond to you it's true you know what's not different though what's not different still got a bunch of real silly segments oh my gosh so let's go okay you ready all right okay here we go It's been a while since we last gathered in this virtual classroom, and owls are fast approaching. So I think it's time for some revisions. Revisions? What are those? Uh, From what I understand, it's the British word for studying. Wonderful. Yeah. This is the segment where we are going to pull in some threads from previous episodes, catch you up on what you need to know about what we've discussed so far, Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about the book being discussed in this episode. So what book are we talking about? Today, we are talking about Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which is also known by the title Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So we're going to be talking about this book for a while. We're going to do a few different episodes about it. And instead of doing a kind of plot summary episode by episode moving through the book, instead what we're going to do is tackle the book from a bunch of different angles. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking about Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone as a whole this episode, but we're going to be focusing in really specifically on one aspect of it. And the aspect that we are going to be focusing in on in this episode is the idea of Harry Potter in general and Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in particular as a chosen one narrative. So why does that make sense as a way to talk about this first book? I guess because Harry Potter is the chosen one. (laughs) I guess so. Even though that this is a key theme of the series as a whole, this is the book where we see him becoming that figure, Mm -hmm. right? Like it, it opens up with this idea of him as the boy who lived with him as a child being propelled sort of without his knowledge into the position of this kind of chosen one figure. Mm -hmm. And it's also where we see him getting like chosen, I guess. Yeah. It's not a boy who lived. It's the boy who lived. So the first chapter immediately signals to us that this boy, this one, Harry Potter is going to be a big deal. Did you reread this book for this episode? I reread chunks of this book 
for the episode and I listened to the Jim Dale audiobook fairly recently and then again in a panic last night trying to remember if I'd ever read the book before. How about you, Hannah? Did you reread this book or what? Oh my God. Like I closely reread the first five or six chapters Mm -hmm. because even though this isn't a sort of summarize as we go approach, as I was thinking through like what makes this a chosen one narrative, I was like, okay, I want to take a really close look at how things open Mm -hmm. up. And what I really wanted to pay attention to is like, what are the structure of these opening chapters? How do we encounter this character for the first time? What information do we have about him as we go in? Because I don't know about you, but I have a really hard time keeping these details straight in my head because I have read these books so many times. (laughs) So, for example, I often forget that we have a whole introductory chapter that is focalized first through the Dursleys, um, through Uncle Vernon in particular. We get his perspective for like two pages and then it shifts to a kind of omniscient perspective that's looking at McGonagall and Dumbledore and talks about, you know, them leaving this child on this doorstep. And then it shifts from there into being Harry's perspective for a whole nother chapter before it's, it's chapter three is where the letters arrive. So that's what I was really interested in was sort of unpacking these opening chapters and how we encounter Harry grappling with the question of the significance of the snake chapter. Mm. What's the point of that snake scene, Marcel? (laughs) And then also thinking a little bit about the structure of the book as a whole. But for me, the really interesting thing was that question of how do we find out that Harry Potter is the chosen one? This is a great question. I feel like we're going to come back to it in our exams. Yeah, we are. So if we're going to really start unpacking these questions about what a chosen one narrative is and what that has to do with reading this book, I think we should um, head on over into that segment, huh? All right. We're still dubious about the ethics of turning a mouse into a teacup, but we feel pretty good about turning theory into praxis. So let's head into Transfiguration Class, where we unpack the ideas we'll be working with in this episode. So in this section, we're going to talk about what the heck a Chosen One narrative even is. We both did a little bit of reading about Chosen One narratives. Um, I started with Google. (laughs) I started with Google Scholar because I'm a scholar. (laughs) So Google took me to a website called The Nerd Daily. And according to (laughs) (laughs) according to Anita Olson Stubeck at The Nerd Daily, chosen one tropes are, quote, very similar to and sometimes interchangeable with what in narrative theory is known as the hero's journey, or the monomyth, end quote. So before we get into chosen one narratives, let's first clarify what we mean by hero and what the heck a hero's journey is. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. (laughs) So if we're going to start talking about Harry Potter as a chosen one narrative, we also have to talk about Harry Potter as a hero narrative and as a hero's journey narrative. And this whole idea that there are these sort of universalizable ideas about what a hero looks like 
but perhaps more significantly what a hero does, since that's at the heart of this whole question of what the hero's journey is. Mm -hmm. Oh, this takes me back to first year undergraduate reading Joseph <laughs> Campbell for the first time and encountering this idea that across all cultures, there are these sort of universal characteristics to myth. Yeah. And that, hmm, <laughs> that's an idea upon which I would like to apply a little pressure. <laughs> but I guess before we apply pressure to it, we should actually understand what the monomyth is, huh? Sure. So the concept of the hero's journey, which is sometimes called monomyth, as in one myth to rule them all, is a tool used to understand all kinds of stories. It's even being used in contemporary psychology and self-help books and self-help narratives to understand personal experiences. Yeah, you got to be your own hero. And you can only get out of your problem after you've hit rock bottom in the underworld. <laughs> So the term was coined by Joseph Campbell in 1949. And if you were to Google search Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, you will find all kinds of very helpful, elegant diagrams that usually revolve around a circle. And so the idea of the hero's journey is it's a sort of cycle. And so you start with the call to adventure and eventually you will cross into this other world you will have a bunch of adventures and then you will have to cross back home and then you will be back home. The go-to for me when I think about the hero's journey is always Odysseus. Mm -hmm. Maybe because there was a popular children's television show that was an adaptation of the Odyssey that I watched a lot as a child. <laughs> Maybe because I read and really enjoyed the Odyssey in my undergrad, but that's such a sort of classic example of what this looks mm -hmm. like, right? You know, we have Odysseus at home with his wife and his son, and he's called away to go fight in the Trojan War. So he receives the call to adventure. He has to sort of cross over and go out of his home into this wider world. And then in order to get back home, which is ultimately what he's trying to do, he has to face all of these trials. And those are the trials that are often interpreted as being sort of universal tropes that can tell us something about both the nature of the hero's journey, but also the nature of like human psychology or whatever, because it, we all have to metaphorically strap ourselves to the metaphorical bow of a metaphorical <laughs> ship. So that the metaphorical <laughs> sexy sirens won't metaphorically eat us. Yeah. I'm not sure what the sirens want to do. I think that's what they want to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, sexy women are always a metaphor for danger. danger. And the other thing that I think really makes the Odyssey feel like an implicable version of this is that you do actually have the whole part where Odysseus gets home mm -hmm. and has to like settle back in. And by settle back in, I mean murder his wife's many suitors. Ooh, awkward. So that's for me, that sort of structure, right? Like you're called away and then you go on a bunch of adventures and then you get home and maybe you do a murder. Yeah. Or two. Or six. I don't know how many suitors there were. I can't remember. So the chosen one narrative is very, very closely aligned with the idea of the hero's journey. And so according to 
Elise M. Wisniewski, whose master's thesis both Hannah and I dug into in order to make this episode, quote, The chosen one is a term used by critics and writers in fantasy and science fiction genres to describe a hero above other heroes. The chosen one embodies Anglo-American understandings of the hero, his fated destiny, and his journey rooted in the literary architecture of medieval fantasy, which frequently understands the hero as a Christ figure. He sacrifices, dies, and is resurrected to save a community and its values. And... There's lots of sort of characteristic classic examples, particularly in this kind of Anglo-American fantasy tradition of these really significant Christ-like chosen one figures. So probably the go-to one is King Arthur, who has, you know, this whole long history of medieval literature and all of these different legends, but there's always this connection, right? The special boy who can pull the sword out of the stone, who is fated to be the king of Britain, who will return the kingdom to something, something. And then lots of other British fantasy in particular is directly playing on these Arthurian legends. So the Lord of the Rings, right? Aragorn is the fated king, and he needs to be returned to his position as the rightful ruler for the world to return to some form of like normalcy and order. Mm -hmm. Lots of scholars have pointed out that Harry Potter is absolutely participating in the same tradition as King Arthur, as Lord of the Rings, that he is this chosen one hero who is part of a culture or a world that is in disarray, and he is the fated one who will return this world to order, probably through some sort of significant sacrifice. Mm. Because sacrifice is really key to the sort of Christ-like nature of, in particular, these chosen one narratives. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could think of chosen one narratives as like what happens when you take this apparently universal idea of the hero's journey and then layer this sort of Anglo-American Christian idea on top of it that says here is what a hero's journey looks like. It involves sacrifice and redemption, Mm -hmm. which are not quite there in like the Odysseus idea, like Odysseus is not there to sacrifice himself and redeem his world. Mm -hmm. He's there to just have some sexy adventures and (laughs) get home eventually. So why do you think we come back to these like chosen one hero's journey monomyth narratives over and over again? Like we know that Harry Potter is drawing on this tradition And it's obviously drawing on it successfully because people (laughs) seem to like it. (laughs) So what about it appeals? So one of the things that I like to do when we're doing some critical interpretation or critical interrogation is I like to think of things as being satisfying and unsatisfying. And so for me, the idea of a chosen one narrative can be very satisfying because it's predictable. You have a pretty good sense from the outset that your hero is going to win, that there's going to be some sexy adventures along the way, maybe some goofy sidekicks, maybe some magic or, I don't know, 
excitement and drama. Like they're like cookies, you know? <laughs> yeah, you don't want a cookie to taste like a surprise. No, no. We we like cookies because they are predictable. And if you eat a cookie and it's gross, that is a bad cookie. And that's not you. It's not you who's done something wrong. It's not that you don't have a sophisticated enough palate for this spinach cookie. The cookie is not made properly. And I think that chosen one narratives are a lot like that. You know, you can turn to other kinds of cuisine when you want new experiences, but cookies are a real comfort food. Yeah, I think the comparison for me is the pleasure of reading genre fiction. Mm -hmm. I really like reading romance novels, and I don't read romance novels expecting literary surprise. In fact, if I read a romance novel and right at the end of it, the heroine died tragically, I would be furious because I go into it expecting it to have a roughly familiar shape so that then I can both read it with a level of comfort, anticipating the sort of pleasures of the familiar story beats and the predictable ending, but also because a really predictable shape to a thing really lets you then enjoy more fully the small changes, mm-hmm. right? So, so when you're reading, say, reading a book that is really experimental and really strange that is structurally doing something you haven't encountered before. A lot of your brain ends up being occupied with its strangeness and its structure and with grappling with like what the heck is happening in the first place. And that has its own kind of pleasures, the pleasures of encountering textual difficulty. But a familiar text lets you really like see and enjoy those small little details. Like I can really take pleasure in the specificity of the banter between these two characters, because I understand the stakes that surround them. I know that nothing that bad is going to happen to them. And so I can really just like enjoy this little detail. It's like watching a new season of RuPaul's Drag Race. You know all of the story beats that are going to happen. You know that somebody's going to get cut and somebody's going to advance. And at the end, somebody's going to win. And so you don't have to get concerned with like trying to follow plot details and being like, who's that again? And what's that person doing? Like like Game of Thrones, where I was just constantly confused and a little (laughs) angry. Instead, (laughs) you can really just enjoy the particular look somebody has put together. Right, right. Is that a good allegory? I think that's amazing. It makes me think about how sometimes when I eat a cookie, (laughs) imagine you're eating an oatmeal chocolate chip cookie and somebody who made it, the person, Mm -hmm. you might call them a baker. (laughs) The cookie maker, if you will. The cookie maker, the cookie master has sprinkled in a little (laughs) pinch of cinnamon And that Mm. is an exciting delight. It's a surprise, but it's a surprise within the genre of cookie. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, yeah, because you know what you're getting, you are more able to enjoy that delightful twist on an original. It's not like a philosophically deconstructed cookie where you just get like a bag of oats and some sad chocolate chips. No? 
<laughs> yep, absolutely. I hate a deconstructed cookie. It makes me so mad. Yeah, seriously. I don't even like cookie dough, to be honest. I, it makes me furious. Construct the cookie, you coward. <sighs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So should we think about the story? Let's think about the story. I hope you were all paying attention in that last segment because it is time for your owls <gasps> where we explore how the theories we just discussed help us better understand the book. Let's get into it. So I would really like to jump in with some close attention to these opening chapters before we expand outward to how does the idea of the chosen one impact our reading of Harry Potter. I want to start I want to start small this week if that's okay. Yeah. And what really struck me as I was rereading is this opening chapter The Boy Who Lived. So picture a version of the Harry Potter books where you jump in at chapter two and go straight into the sun rose on the tidy front gardens and lit up the brass number four on the Dursley's front door. Right. So the, the beginning of chapter two drops us into the Dursley's house. Yeah. And establishes it as a place that is normal and boring. And then very quickly zooms us into Harry Potter asleep under the stairs. If the book began this way, we would need to discover, along with Harry, at the same pace as him, that he is special. Mm -hmm. We'd have a giveaway. The giveaway would be the fact that his name's on the cover. <laughs> but what if it wasn't called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone? What if it was just called the Philosopher's Stone? Especially if it was just called the Philosopher's Stone, we would need to figure out, you know, here is a special child. Yeah. But either way, we would be right from the beginning, sort of inside the perspective of this character who believes that he is mundane and lives in this mundane world, who is distinctly unspecial, who is so comically unspecial that he is essentially being systematically abused by his monstrous family. Mm. As unspecial as one can be. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it starts. It starts with a whole chapter that laboriously lays out for us the extreme specialness of this child that wants to make sure that we know, like, here's a mundane world, right? Here's the world that Vernon Dursley lives in that is so specifically and deliberately mundane. And right from the get go, it's like, but don't worry, there's a magical other world. And this idiot doesn't want to pay attention to it, but that's because he sucks. Yeah, he People who don't want to pay sucks. attention to wizards suck. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the special, special boy. He's so special. He's so famous. He's so magical. He's going to be an incredible wizard, but we're going to leave him in this boring house. That's really different than the unexpected surprise of the, you know, 
scrappy orphan pulling the sword out of the stone. Yeah. We don't encounter him as a nobody who then proves himself to be, in fact, remarkable. It is about an already remarkable and special child who is temporarily displaced Hmm. from his innate specialness, who the second he's returned to the wizarding world, everybody, just by virtue of looking at him, know that he is chosen and special. Hmm. He might not be legible as special to muggles, Mm -hmm. but to wizards, he is emblazoned with a big, obvious signifier that says chosen one. Mm-hmm. In the shape of a lightning bolt on his face. In the shape of a lightning bolt on his face. Ow! Huh. So here's what I think is sort of interesting about this. And maybe this is just because we've read through the whole series and in the previous run of our podcast, we've dissected the whole series and... I'm sure that we'll come back to this conversation when we get to book five. So I won't talk about, you know, the stuff that we learn that complicates the idea of chosenness in book five. But the thing that I find so interesting about this reading is that Harry Potter isn't actually all that special. Right? Yeah. So like the first chapter tells us that he's special. Oh, he's the boy who lived. The title of the book tells us that he's special. But as we sort of accompany him along this journey, you know what he is actually very good at (laughs) is Quidditch. (laughs) (laughs) So like, okay, okay, I'll give you that. It's the only thing that's not given to him. Yeah. I mean, his status as a chosen one is given to him first by Voldemort and then by the wizarding world as a whole. And then his status as a celebrity is given to him. The cloak is given to him. Mm -hmm. The broomstick is given to him. Like he keeps receiving all of these things, Mm -hmm. right? You're right. The quit be just being innately good at Quidditch seems to be the only thing that's actually innate about him. And it kind of doesn't end up being that central to his ability to save the world. No. At the end of the day, he does not save the world through some some quick broom work. He doesn't even (laughs) become an internationally successful Quidditch player. Spoilers. Spoilers. (laughs) But so it's really interesting to think about like, here is a child who from the second we encounter him, We are being told the same thing that everybody in the wizarding world is being told, which is he's special. He's so special. Oh, my God. Look how special he is. This child is so special. Mm -hmm. And so what happens to a kid when you tell him every second that he is chosen? (laughs) Right? What kinds of choices does that child then make? Mm -hmm. How does he understand his position in the world? How much of his intervention into the affairs of the school in this book (laughs) are shaped by the fact that he has this like narrative albatross on his back yeah telling him that he's a hero definitely oh my god yeah the sense of responsibility that he seems to hold for protecting the school from the person who's trying to steal the philosopher's stone which initially they assume is snape and then they find out is actually Quirrell. It is absurd that an 11-year-old child would take responsibility for that. But it makes for darn good storytelling. That's for <laughs> sure. It really does. 
It really does. So in, in that sense, the book does follow a lot of these patterns of the hero's journey, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. we've got the call to adventure, mm-hmm. which comes in the form of a letter. Mm-hmm. And characteristically, the call to adventure is followed by a refusal of the call. I'm a what? And the call needs to be repeated <laughs> a number of times. And this is amazing. Like the entire repeated shtick with the letters arriving and being interrupted by Uncle Vernon mm-hmm. and then more letters and more letters and Uncle Vernon running further and further away, right? It's just an extended version of this refusal of the call mm-hmm. until we get the arrival of this magical guardian figure who's Mm -hmm. going to escort him across the threshold. Yeah. And I had never noticed before until I started actually reading with this idea of the hero's journey in mind that Hagrid is a perfect companion to lead you across a threshold because he is this incredibly threshold oriented figure Mm. himself. Yeah. He's introduced to us as the keeper of the keys which is never a way Hagrid is talked about again. Never again. <laughs> no, he's the groundskeeper for the rest yeah. of the time. But when we first meet him, he's the keeper of the keys because he's all about opening all of these doors. And then he takes Harry through Diagon Alley. He's the person who escorts him onto the boat and into Hogwarts. Like he is constantly leading him through these various thresholds. He's responsible for placing fluffy the threshold guardian at the mouth of the next most significant threshold harry's gonna have to go through so this book is all about like god he passes through so many doors and uh hagrid is the one who takes harry into the forbidden forest right yeah so we've got lots of these familiar heroes journey tropes happening Mm -hmm. we've got thresholds um we've got so many trials so many and repeated multiple times right so the initial trials that he has to go through even to arrive at hogwarts Mm -hmm. and that's a version of a threshold and then the trials he goes through while he's at hogwarts to figure out what's actually going on with the philosopher's stone Mm -hmm. which includes encountering the troll and going into the forest Mm -hmm. and then of course once they actually go into like down through the threshold guarded by fluffy then we've got an incredibly literal set of trials yeah <laughs> that have to be faced one after another so this whole book is like hero's journey hero's journey hero's journey let's do it again five <laughs> more times <laughs> right it's yeah it's belaboring it but i think in a like really interesting way because it's asking those questions, right? It's setting us up to think of Harry as a particular kind of hero so that as the series continues, we'll be ready to then question Mm -hmm. what we assume to be the case. That's right. So there are some really interesting ways that Harry subverts the idea of the chosen one and the sort of universal hero figure um, and that we can use this structure to sort of critically unpack what's going on in this book. Mm -hmm. But then there are also some other ways that he's like the least subversive hero slash chosen one possible. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we backtrack a little bit to one of our old school white male literary critics, Northrop Fry. Fry tells us that 
there are a variety of different types of heroes, and the hero is always understood with respect to their power and ability in relation to our powers and abilities as the reader. So for the sake of brevity, we're just going to skip all the ones that are not Harry. (laughs) Can you give us like one other example? Can you remember any other examples? Well, yeah. So, okay. So the hero might have power that is above ours. The hero might have the power of action. So in whatever way that takes shape, it could be moral. It could be like having superhuman strength, that kind of thing. Okay. So like Superman is a particular kind of hero. Yes, exactly. That's like all about the fact that he's like godlike yes. and like better than us. And Superman narratives are always about the problem of like how humanity responds to a godlike hero. Yes. Yes. Okay. And at the same time, there are also heroes whose power of action is less than ours. And so we might think of like Lucifer in Paradise Lost, who is an anti-hero. This is sort of the idea of the anti-hero where it's a person who we don't really like or we don't really want them to succeed, but they're the central protagonist or the central figure in the text. And we experience the fiction in relation to that figure. Okay. Okay. So Harry is this fourth type. Um, I'll just quote Fry directly. If superior neither to other men nor to his environment, the hero is one of us. So we, the reader, respond to a sense of his common humanity and demand from the author, Fry says poet, I'm saying author, the same limits of probability that we find in our own experience. And so what this means is because Harry lives until he goes to the wizarding world, a life that is familiar to us and makes sense to us with respect to probabilities that we might experience or the probability of magical things happening to us. Mm-hmm. Harry is a very identifiable figure in a very limited way. Yeah, he's like an everyman hero. So we're supposed to like be able to imagine ourselves into his position and like vicariously experience the world through his experiences. Yeah. And so many of the book's signals towards magic before the revelation that he's a wizard are framed as um, the thing is that unusual stuff often happened to Harry and like who hasn't had unusual stuff, not quite as unusual as like you get your head shaved and then it grows back the next day. But like, you know, unusual things that you can't quite explain. And wouldn't it be so charming and lovely if those turned out to actually be indications that you are a magician or a wizard or a witch? Okay, so all of those things being said, the idea of Harry Potter as one of us super needs unpacking because Harry is a white, cis, able-bodied, middle-class English kid. (laughs) Who comes from a wealthy family. Yeah. Who is like such an established, comfortable insider to this world in basically every way, except the sort of accident of his temporary displacement. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, absolutely. Like (laughs) the idea of him as an everyman is exactly the problem with any idea of an everyman, Mm -hmm. which is who gets to stand in as a universal signifier of humanity and who is always going to be exceptional, Mm -hmm. right? Whose stories are universalizable stories that we can all picture ourselves in and whose stories are niche special interest stories. That's right. 
Yeah. And that takes us right back to those like questions about why did Rowling make her hero a boy? Mm-hmm. Because making him a boy makes him unmarked neutral protagonist mm-hmm. whereas making him a girl would have made this books for girls right right let alone any other signifiers of like meaningful difference mm-hmm. that might have been present in the books i mean we can make a similar argument for her insistence on like unmarked queerness mm-hmm. but that whole idea of harry as an identifiable hero Yeah, yeah, it's premised on a very particular understanding of what it means to be to be neutral. Indeed, the very premise of the monomyth, right? Like these come from the same ideology of like white Eurocentric Christian thought. Yeah. So that's really worth spending a moment on that idea that the monomyth is not something objectively observed to be true about human culture, but rather an interpretation produced by very particular people in a very particular intellectual climate. Mm -hmm. So when we look at people like Joseph Campbell and Northrop Frye, we're looking at white male scholars from an Anglo-American tradition who were invested in the idea of a universality that put them and their culture as a logical endpoint of all human culture leading up to it. Yeah. Right. So if you very selectively cherry pick and say all of the stories that matter are stories that if you stack them in order, lead up to (laughs) me and the books I like being the most important (laughs) things in the world. Then what you got there is you got some mid 20th century white male theory is what you got. That's right. And so then it makes perfect sense that if this idea of the monomyth is the dominant theory that influences the creation of fantasy and science fiction, it makes sense that these creators would then draw on this thing that has been positioned as the monomyth in order to create their stories. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it is part of why so much YA fantasy coming out of other cultural contexts and traditions right now feels so fresh and exciting to us as readers. Um, Tomi Adeyemi's Children of Blood and Bone, which I think has a sequel out now, which is like Children of Something and Something Else, uh, but which comes out of and is built on this structure of Nigerian myth. Mm-hmm. And so for readers who are used to fantasy novels that are built on the sort of Anglo-American Christian myth system, those books are giving us something really different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this kind of takes us back to that question that you asked earlier on of how satisfying mm. is this version of the monomyth? Mm-hmm. and. I think that's a really interesting question on a lot of levels, because on the one hand, we can say there's something unsatisfying about it. Mm -hmm. There is something for us as readers reading from the very particular positions we are reading as women, reading as queer, reading as feminists. We are unsatisfied Mm -hmm. by the way that Harry is positioned as this neutral figure who is like always already the hero. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there is 
obviously something deeply satisfying (laughs) about this book series. And I wonder if part of that is the larger idea of what it means to be chosen in these books, by which I mean, sure, we've got the boy who lived, Mm -hmm. but isn't the part that we find really exciting as readers, not almost being killed by an evil wizard, but rather receiving a letter one day saying that you're special and get to go to a special school. Yes. And Harry's not the only one who gets that letter. Yes. Lots of kids get that letter. Yeah. And the book does such a determined job of establishing up front that it sucks being a muggle. Mm-hmm. Sure, there's there's a brief aside when Harry and Hagrid first meet where Harry's like, you know, some muggles are fine, mm-hmm. but the Dursleys are terrible. And that's like as much as we get of muggle apology yeah. for this entire book, for sure. Yeah. Hagrid says, I'd like to see a great muggle like you stop him to Uncle Vernon. And when Harry says a what, Hagrid says a muggle. It's what we call non-magic folk like them. And it's your bad luck. You grew up in a family of the biggest muggles I ever laid eyes on. (laughs) Right? So that's Mm -hmm. a non-neutral deployment of the word muggle. That is not like some people are muggles and some people are wizards and it's fine either way. It's like, these are the biggest muggles. Mm -hmm. To be a muggle is to be somebody who deliberately ignores magic mm-hmm. who hates whimsy mm-hmm. who spits in the face of joy <laughs> so who would want to be a muggle it's right. the worst yeah you want to get that letter yeah saying that you're not part of this world you're part of that other world where things are better yeah for me it's so much this idea that like you can find a place where your difference is welcome and that your difference is celebrated where you belong. And so then as readers, we get to imagine that there's a place for us too, for all of our various differences, for all of the things that mark us as different or mark us as other or, you know. As as not fitting in. Yeah. Right? You know, he's his characteristic as a child is that he doesn't fit into this family or this household. Mm-hmm. And so the discovery that there is another world where he does belong, that's a kind of universalizable experience, isn't it? Or at least a universalizable desire. Yeah. One that resonates particularly for a lot of queer kids, mm-hmm. that familiarity of that sense of like, I once felt out of step with the world mm-hmm. and then... You know, I found a community, an identity, a place, an understanding of myself that suddenly made things click. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly felt like, oh, I make sense in this version of the world. That's right. And while this is a book about a specific chosen one and a specific hero, it's also a book about a collective. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a book about this whole first year class. It's a book also about... Ron and Hermione and Neville and Draco and all of these other kids who are also suddenly in this world and grappling with it and figuring out how they fit into it. And I think that's what makes this an enduringly exciting story of chosenness because 
there's a whole bunch of kids here. There's a whole collective here. And that makes it a whole lot more possible to imagine ourselves into it than if it was just about this one special boy. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if Harry was the only person who came from a muggle family, this would be a very different story. Yes, absolutely. But the fact that we find out not only, you know, Lily was muggle born, but his dad wasn't. And here's one of his new friends who is actually muggle born and is going to experience a lot more of that stigma than he is. Mm hmm. And right at the beginning, we we encounter other kids talking about like, yeah, I come from a mixed family or mm -hmm. or I'm muggle born or and that's not centered around Harry. That becomes a community experience really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. What a great book. Yeah, I'm a fan. <laughs> All right. Shall we wrap it? Yeah. Well, thank you, our most beloved listenership, for joining us on this adventure of episode one of The New and Improved, Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our brand new but already beloved producer. Hello. 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 And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming with us on this exciting journey. <laughs> this exciting hero's journey. <gasps> if... <laughs> If you are into this reboot, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. Every episode, we will read five-star reviews right here. So I pulled the last five-star review that's up on the Canadian Apple Podcasts, which is from February 2020. Marcel, you want to read this for us? Sure. This is from Lottie Shepley, and it's titled Still Listening. Absolutely love this podcast. These two lady scholars are fantastic, hilarious, and full of laughs. That's true. I listen to it on repeat and get more out of it each time. I hope they revive it and do a handful more with the new content being released. Or reread the series as a five-year anniversary of the podcast. Just saying, well, looky here, Lottie. <laughs> We're doing something. Five-year anniversary. Oh Can you God. believe? I, I, I can't. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> also, don't forget, we've started a Patreon where you can help keep this project going and gain access to all that solid gold bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash witch please. On our next episode, we'll be continuing on our journey through Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone with a whole new focus. But until then, later, witches. <laughs>